Welcome to the show, everybody. Our guest, Dr. Mitchell Yass, is a leading authority on diagnosing and treating chronic pain who has created his own pain management method titled the Yass Method. He has also written three books and performed a PBS special on the issue. And um, yeah, you'll see very quickly, uh, Mitchell is an extremely passionate human being. (laughs) Um, But he's a... He has, a, he has a very kind heart, and one thing that a lot of you will not know is when I chatted with him off off air to figure out if he'd be a good fit for the podcast, he got so passionate, he literally started crying about um, just all of the people in the world who suffer from chronic pain and how it's his miss- mission to um, to just help people. So he's a, he's a very... He's a very kind person, and he sometimes comes across very intense. Um, he does have a very intense energy, but when you really tune into him, you'll realize that he has a huge heart. Um, but in our conversation together, we dive into why chronic pain is one of the largest epidemics in the world, what causes chronic pain and any kind of acute pain, how the medical industrial complex has profited off of misdiagnosing chronic pain and all of the opioids and all of the epidemics of um, drugs that come with it. And lastly, how social media has become weaponized and used against its users like all of us. Yeah, this was a, a fascinating conversation, and I personally learned a lot about uh, about pain that I was completely unaware of, so I hope you all enjoy it. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to thank our first sponsor of the show, Listening to Smile, and its founder and personal friend of mine, Ian Morris. Listening to Smile is one of the companies leading the movement to bring frequency-minded music to the mainstream. And for anyone who doesn't know, frequency-minded music is music that is infused with binaural beats and frequencies that enhance and speed up our body's natural healing mechanisms. And Ian's music is actively healing the world and is currently inspiring open-minded leaders in Silicon Valley to include his music in their products and to help them create a workplace culture that is focused on mental health and well-being. And I personally use Listening to Smile's products every single day to support me with stress relief and is my music of choice for my daily meditation practice. And Listening to Smile has two main programs. The first is their personal wellness program, and this is for personal use, and this consists of healing albums for stress relief, pain relief, and anxiety relief. And the second program is their affiliate program. This is what I'm currently part of, and this is for commercial use, and this is the exciting one. So what you get with this is two free starter albums and one brand new album every single month. You also get access to monthly live coaching events with founder Ian Morris and commission earnings on album sales, a 50% discount on all music purchases, and licensing rights to use and resell LTS music for commercial use. So... If you're interested in transforming your life and entering the expanding frontier of frequency-minded music, be sure to go to www.listeningtosmile.com and experience it for yourself. And at checkout, make sure to use code ANTON to get 40% off all albums and $100 off of their affiliate program. So enjoy, everyone. And now on to our podcast with Dr. Mitchell Yass. Mitchell, welcome to the show, brother. 
Great to be here. Really excited to be on your podcast, man. Uh, we're going to have fun. Now, the first uh, thing is an obvious one that everyone who's listening knows I'm going to ask you, but I just love for you to share your story with me and how you got into this world of chronic pain, because as it says in your bio, you are one of the leading authorities on diagnosing and treating chronic pain, and you've developed your own pain and pain management system method called the YAS method. And yeah, you've written three books and performed a PBS special regarding the issues. So yeah, please just take us through your life, how do you get into this field? So it's important to understand that although this is my area of expertise, my understanding began going all the way back as a child. So I was that mm. 99 pound weakling guy, the guy who had sand kicked in his face, literally had nervous anxiety every time I walked to high school for fear of being beaten up. I had a lot of problem with perceiving myself as I was. So finally, I come to a realization that it's because I'm a very thin guy. And um, so I'm going to want to change my life. So I want to get stronger and lift weights. So from 19 to 26 years old, I did everything Arnold Schwarzenegger and Joe Weider told me to. I lifted weights. I got the Encyclopedia Bodybuilder. I did the weight protein, everything they told me to do. And nothing happened. Oh, wow. And so at 26, the strangest thing begins to come to my mind. I say, wait a second, weightlifting is really about pushing against gravity and gravity is a force vector. I remember I took a high school physics course. Maybe there were laws of physics that could actually help me understand how to do weightlifting. So I looked at fulcrums and lever arms and force vectors, and, and it helped me to understand what's the proper position of my hands in doing a lat pull down or a bench press to wow. push against the resistance optimally. And I mm. took that through all my different exercises. And sure enough, over the next four years, I put on 40 pounds of muscle. I go from 160 pounds to 200 pounds in four years. Now, just as this is happening and coming towards its end point, I was a project manager in construction. That's what my degree is in. That was my first career. I became disillusioned, didn't think there was value in it, didn't enjoy it anymore. So I'm looking for a second job. And I took a job in a gym picking up weights because I really didn't know what else I was going to do. And the guy says, oh, you could have a job helping people with their bodies and you don't have to go to the extent of being a physician, all that education. I'm like, really, what are the types of jobs? And he's like, well, physical therapy, occupational therapy, exercise physiology. And as me being me, I was like, which is the most complicated <laughs> physical therapy. So I'm like, okay. So I look into it and there's a couple of courses I need to get. Finally, I apply and I get into school. One other little bit about myself as a child was I was taught analytical thinking as a child, literally the capacity to theorize. So the example of that is everybody as a child learns two plus one is three, three plus one is four. My father would say to me, no, Mitchell, you must know N plus one. What is the theoretical basis by adding one to any number? Because sometime in the future, someone's going to ask you how to add one to that. And I want you to be able to answer it, even if you haven't been taught that. Right. Now apply that to life. Every aspect of life, you must know how to theorize. Take an idea, take it to the nth degree to be able to tell what's valid and what's not yeah, and be principles. able to create your own theory. So I basically over the next 10 years try to perfect this ability. So I finally get into physical therapy school and everything they're saying is baseless. There is no theoretical reasoning behind it. It's simply what's been professed for years. And so that's the answer. And I understand that very quickly. So I say, you know what? I'm just going to pass these courses. And at the end, I'm going to get out and figure out how to do what I'm going to do. So you finally get to the end 
of your curriculum. Now you're going to do your affiliations. You got someone standing in front of you. So it's very real. Person says, oh, I have pain. Now, to me, the logical first question would be, where's your pain? Point to it. So I would say, can you show me where your pain is? Now, we had been taught based on that time frame that the MRI is identifying herniated discs, arthritis, stenosis, all these meniscal tears, all these things. Of course, well, the person would point to where their pain was and where the pointing is not where the pain should be. If the identified structural variation were to create pain. So if the pain isn't where it should be, then you can't say that the structural variation identified is, in fact, causing that pain. And I'll kind of give you a like a simplish example. Yeah. Someone has pain three inches off to the side of their spine on the left side. Yeah. An MRI or X-ray shows that they have a compression fracture of the L4, the lumbar vertebrae. So you would have to say from a logical perspective, where would you expect the compression fracture of the L4 vertebrae to create pain? Well, at the fracture site of the L4 vertebrae. Mm. But the person's pain is three inches off to the side. So I don't understand. How Mm. could the compression fracture be causing that pain? And the answer is it can't. So you would have to try to figure out what tissue is creating that pain three inches off. And it turns out you have a low back muscle that's right there. And if I press on your low back muscle, you say, yep, that's the pain. That shows that the low back muscle is the muscle creating the pain. And the compression fracture was probably degenerative and had been there for a very long time. And it's only identified for the first Ah. time because the low back muscle led you to get the MRI to find it for the first time. Yeah. Oh, man, I I get that. Paul Check talks about this all the time that, yeah, it's usually not like 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 you said, we usually have this idea that it's like wherever we have pain, like soothe that muscle. But like a lot of the time, um, Paul, I and uh, he's much more intelligent in in, than me in this area. And so are you. Um, But like from I think what I gathered from him is a lot of the time it is like if you have pain in your lower back, I think a lot of the time he says like it's like lower or above. Usually there's Correct. going to that. Right. So basically what happened was I'm now I'm now in my final affiliation as a student graduating and I'm starting to ask everybody, where's your pain? Where's your pain? Where's your pain? And it's never where it should be if that structural variation was causing pain. So being the person I was, remember, I was taught the ability to theorize. Yeah. I start investigating well, what could be the tissue creating that symptom if it's not the structural variation? And it turns out in more than 98% of cases, it's a muscle. Literally, it's muscle. So I'll give you another example. This is classic. So a person comes to me and says, I have pain around my kneecap. And they came to me with the diagnosis of a meniscal tear because an MRI found a meniscal tear. Now, yeah. what you have to understand is that the knee is actually comprised of two joints the joint between the thigh bone and lower leg bone, and then the joint between the kneecap and the thigh bone. The Mm. meniscus lies between the thigh bone and lower leg bone. So what you are being told is that the structure of one joint can cause pain at a completely different joint. That is to say that if you have a, if you have elbow pain, and I take an X-ray or an MRI of your ankle and it shows you have arthritis there, I can comfortably tell you that the arthritis at the ankle is causing your elbow pain. 
you would laugh and say you're a lunatic. And yet this is the very thing that this person is being told. The pain around the kneecap, which is one joint, is coming from a structure of a completely different joint. So I couldn't accept that. Mm. So I would say, well, what could cause pain around the kneecap? And here's the understanding. Your front thigh muscle attaches to your kneecap. And if your front thigh muscle happened to strain and shorten, it would pull excessively on the kneecap. So when you bend your knee, the kneecap is compressed too much, causing Uh. pain. So if I stretch your quadricep muscle and lengthen it, I reduce the compression of the kneecap and you don't have pain anymore. And so literally this person who walked in told they need surgery due to a meniscal tear. I resolve the pain and return them to full function by stretching the quad and strengthening the hamstring. Mm. Now, I start doing that from every point in the body, from the head to the toes. And that's how this fully developed. Mm. Very, very cool. When you were speaking, I was actually like looking at my leg and my quadricep and Yes. And I, I was like, literally, like, cause that, that, <clears throat> that makes sense. If I actually look at my leg and then you, you, yeah, it would shorten. And then, yeah, if you bend your knee, it would compress. It would yeah. compress too much. Right. And then, and then, so one thing I, I want to get straight with you, cause you speak very fast. You're very intelligent. I'm going to slow you down yeah. a little bit. I'm just so, very excited. Unfortunately. <laughs> I, hey man, I, I love it. So I, I just want to get kind of the, um, the, the structure of chronic pain down. So from what I gather with you, and I could be wrong, is that you have a, a tight muscle, let's say you have a, a muscle issue, and then you have a chronic tightness, it probably will be a chronic tightness of a muscle, which will over time create this thing, like, you know, the spinal fracture or something. Um, and, and the spinal fracture won't, it will be because of the tight muscle All right, let's go first. Let me take you through sequentially. This will help everyone understand. Okay, so first of all, chronic pain has never existed in the history of mankind, ever. Chronic pain became an issue in the mid to late 1980s. Wow. Okay, so you could go Google back, look at the Greeks, look at the Romans. You will see no discussion of chronic pain. It's never existed. The mid 1980s is where this begins. So if you are to understand how to address chronic pain, you, you must understand the etiology of chronic pain. So what happened in the mid to, mid to late 1980s? Technology developed. The advent of computers, cell phones, Sitting automation, down. all of this type of thing. And what happened was instead of activity being done manually, everything begins to be done through computerization. Mm. Okay. So what what did people do way back when they did manual stuff? The higher po- prop, the population did manual carpenters, plumbers, you know, yeah. farmers and all that stuff. What's the number one job in the United in the world today? IT, information technology. You sit for eight to 10 hours a day. Wow. Right now, yeah. is it just retired people sitting anymore? No, people all the way down to the 20s. Yeah. So now all of these people are sitting too much. And their muscles, specific muscles that are required for weight bearing type of activity are no longer being utilized. When muscles are not utilized, they weaken. When you then go try to do a basic type of activity, they're not available. So they strain and elicit pain. Mm. So that is the reason why not chronic pain, but pain developed for the mass population. 
If this was 1960 or 70, the only one who was discussing kind of chronic pain were retired people. And what was the theory behind retired people? They sat on the porch on a rocking chair. They stopped moving. Back then, they called it rheumatism, trying to give it a word as if it was a medical problem. It was never medical. It was simply they stopped moving. When they tried to move, they would strain and elicit pain. Wow. So here we have people from the 20s to the 90s now suffering from pain and they're now seeking care. So what's the mechanism by which care is provided? Well, we have to establish what the tissue is creating that pain. And at that time, what was the technology that was developed at the same part of this automation? Boom, the MRI. The oh. MRI is developed in the 1980s, 1970s, oh, wow. when it first coming out. And by the way, the MRI was designed to find tumors in the brain. It was not mm. designed to find the identification of pain. It was designed to find tumors in the brain. But how many people present with symptoms that look like they have a tumor in their brain? Not so many, but it cost a million dollars for the machine. Wow. So I'm sure people said, well, I got this machine and it's a million dollars and I got to find an alternative use. And here come all these new people with pain. And this thing can find structure, look at structure. Oh, my God, that person has pain. It shows a herniated disc. Wow. Maybe that's the cause. Wow, dude. I know it just like the light bulb went off in my head of what you're talking about. Because, yeah, we don't look at the muscle. We just look at the herniated disc and we go, that's what's like. And then we we do surgery or we do all these things rather than ever. Like, so it's we're always treating the symptom rather than the cause of the issue. Now you're starting to get the now it's all coming together. So if and that's the key to looking at it sequentially, it starts to make sense. So yeah. this MRI, everyone coming in pain is now automatically being diagnosed by the MRI and MRIs can find muscular causes. So in the case of that lower back strain, the, the, the MRI found the compression fracture. So what do you think is going to be treated? The compression fracture. And when they do surgery and it doesn't work and maybe a second surgery and it doesn't work and now they'll give you an epidural nerve block and it doesn't work and now they'll wow. put you on pain medication and it doesn't work. Yeah. What is the reason you have chronic pain? Because the actual cause of your pain, the tissue in distress, which is muscular, is never identified. So it continues to be in distress and elicit pain. So when everyone asks me, what is the cause of acute pain? It is the inability. It is the fact that your muscles have a lesser force output than the force requirement of activity, right? You push gravity's pushing down on you. So yeah. you got to do something against gravity. Muscles are required to push against it. So if the muscles don't have enough force, they strain and elicit pain. That is the cause of acute pain. What is chronic pain? Misdiagnosed acute pain. Go, say that again. What's the sure. difference between acute and chronic pain? Chronic pain, by definition, is pain that, that has existed for more than three to six months. Anything mm -hmm. beyond three to six months is called chronic pain. It's just a shift. It, there's, there's technically no difference. It's a time variation. Gotcha. So acute pain is pain that's less than three to six months. Chronic pain is pain that's greater than three to six months. That's all it means. Got right? you. So how did you go from acute to chronic? How did your pain last more than three to six months? The answer is simple. Misdiagnosis. The tissue in distress was never identified in the acute phase. So it continues to be in distress eliciting your pain, which is why it became chronic.
And, and what, what I'm, I'm guessing would happen is because they're not looking at the muscle imbalances and the muscle tension, and they, they will try to solve the, the physical fracture. Let's say if it's a fracture, let's say they will, they will fix the fracture, which will probably temporarily alleviate some of the symptoms, but then they'll come back because they still haven't figured out that the muscle imbalance is the problem or the muscle tension. All right. So, so I'm going to take you to the next higher level of understanding, which is where it gets really a little scary and hard to accept. Okay, let's do so it. all of those herniated discs, stenosis, arthritis, and nerves, spondylolisthesis, all those scary sounding words have been culturally put into you so that you consider them like cancer in that if they're identified, they require an intervention. That's the way for the last 40 years. That's the idea of showing you that picture. Yeah. The attempt is to provide an image that you say, oh, God, that doesn't look good. And therefore, it requires intervention. Here's the thing you must understand. They're all degenerative in nature. They're occurring so slowly that they don't elicit pain at all. And in fact, every one of the things I just described are actually just like wrinkles in your face. So older people get wrinkles in their face. And I don't hear anybody yelling out, let's all get skin grafts. We all need to get skin grafts to get rid of that wrinkle. It is a defamation of the skin. We need to fix it because we can't accept it's not the way it used to be. You don't hear anyone doing that because there is an acceptance that skin still acts to do its job. Its structural integrity is to prevent antigens from entering our body, even with a wrinkle. You cannot believe this, and it is hard for anyone to accept, but I can prove it is that every one of those things that I just described, pinched, they are wrinkles. They are defamation of the structure, but the structure works perfectly well. Here's how I can tell you. I'll give you an example. Study shows of the people who have knee pain, 63% have meniscal tears. Okay, 63% of people with knee pain have meniscal tears. Of the people who have no knee pain whatsoever, 60% are found to have meniscal tears. Really? That is really? correct. That is correct. So wow. look at it this way. I'm going to give you two choices. You got two choices of logic. Either <laughs> there is a wacky type of pain eliciting meniscal tear and some other very subdued, not quite the same type of meniscal tear that doesn't cause pain or no meniscal tears cause pain. And the people who had it identified when they had pain simply had another tissue in distress wow. that led them to get their MRI to find the meniscal tear while they're in pain. Wow. Which one sounds more like it? Dude, by I, logic, I, just by logic. Yeah, I, I see that, man that wow that, so if so, you want to take it to a really another shocking place so the mri started finding all these herniated discs and what happened was this all developed because the mri comes out and workers comp not workers comp no fault and and even workers comp are pushing right if you have a workers comp case you got to show structure for you to get a long term oh i'm disabled i'm disabled i'm disabled. and so what happened was once the mri came out every lawyer said, oh, my, you know how he just fell off the chair? Oh, well, look, the MRI shows he has a herniated disc. Well, 
I hate to say it, he's got long-term disability. You got to pay him hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so that's what happened. It started being used. The MRI primarily began to be used for workers' comp and no-fault cases. And so eventually what happened was they do that study in 1995, 1994 on people who don't have pain because everybody seems to be showing up with these herniated discs. And it doesn't sound like what's being said to be the cause could cause it. And they find that 70 percent of the population who don't have pain have herniated discs. So if 70 percent don't who don't have pain have herniated discs, how could you say herniated discs cause pain? That sounds peculiar. How do you account for 70 percent having it? The disc and not having pain. Mm. You got to kind of look at it in the realm, as I just said, that the high probability is those that are being having it identified at the time of pain simply have another tissue yeah. eliciting their pain, which is why they get the MRI at the yeah. time of the pain and have the herniated disc. The medical system in one of the most perverse moves ever created begins to say, as wacky as it was what I said before, they say this, there are two types of discs, symptomatic herniations and asymptomatic herniations. Some herniated discs have pain because the person has pain at the time of it, while other herniations don't cause pain. So my question to you as a logician is, show me the physical indication. So I'm going to show you 10 MRIs of this. Tell me which by just looking at them, because you're clearly saying there's a difference. Which one is the herniated? And I'm not going to tell you who's in pain. I'm just going to ask you, tell me which one, because you're saying there's a difference. Show me which one's the asymptomatic and which one. And the and, answer and is you can't. Was, you can't tell. A it's difference. a lie. It yeah. was a lie. And yet that was that was the play. The medical establishment pushed when it started coming out that people didn't have. There were people who didn't have pain and had herniated discs. That wow. was their. That's how yeah. perverse this got. Yeah, that 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 makes sense to me. That That's that's very obvious logic to follow. That yeah, like yep. to cover their ass, like essentially they come up with the mRNA, the <laughs> mRNA. I was gonna say the MRI, the MRI, and then it forces their hand in some sense because they they're forced to make a correlation that never existed, and yeah. then after they're forced to make the correlation, they have to explain why the correlation doesn't make sense fifty percent of the time. That's right. Um, and then they just create the bullshit. They made a story. Asymptomatic. I remember story. this clearly because I was in my beginning. Time. I graduated in 1993. This is at the time when chronic pain has fully exploded. You've now entered the opioid epidemic period. Oh. So why did opioids <laughs> they capitalize on that? Yeah, that was that was the purpose. So people always say, and the shtick of a lot of people is that the opioid epidemic is the result of 18 year olds finding a cheaper form of 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 heroin versus street heroin. If that is true, remember, I'm a logician. If you say something, I'm going to look at it and analyze it logically, and I'm going to prove to you what you're saying is wrong. If, in fact, the opioidemic was directly a result of 18-year-olds looking for cheaper um, forms of heroin, when was heroin used at its height? That would be the 1960s. Mm. Summer of love, man. Heroin, LSD, all that was being used. Okay, so then why didn't opioids get developed at that point? That was when it was used at its highest. It's not even close. 
Oh, that's right, because it had nothing to do with 18 year olds. It had to do with the mass of people from 20 to 90 who were now having muscular based pain who could not have it identified. And since we can't identify and resolve the cause, at best, all we could try to do is mask the symptom. Enter opioids. Symptom management. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Everybody and their mother, when they introduce, when I'm introduced to people, says, "So you're you're a pain management doctor? Pain management? I'm the antichrist, my friend. <laughs> I'm the anti. I'm the guy who's going to try to shut them all down because I'm going to make everyone be out of pain." Wow, that that that's incredible. You you just pointed that out very well. I, I like the way you sequentially told that story. That that was really effective. Um, at helping me understand how it all started in the 1980s with computers and sitting down. And then that creates the muscle imbalances. And then it just sends this whole thing, this whole thing going. Um, now, obviously, you know, this is part of the world. Um, like, for example, I'm a podcaster, or at least what I do in the world is podcasting. I love doing this. I'm not going to give this up for anything. So now, now my question to you is I already kind of have my answer that I'm kind of planning on doing with this. But as a podcast, as someone who is in media and entertainment in something where they're, they're going to be in front of a computer, they're going to be in front of a camera. What do you think is the best thing I can do to have a healthy body while doing this several hours a day? Great question. So if people come to accept my theoretical basis that this is all based on technology, the answer is it will stop people from doing technology. You That's that's suicide. Don't be stupid. Yeah. If this is the person's occupation, we have to work within what they're trying to do. Yes. So there are natural imbalances that have occurred in our body, which is the fact that we do everything in front of us. So if I'm stepping forward, it's forward. If I go upstairs, it's in front of me. If I sit down and stand up, it's in front of me. So there is a natural imbalance that develops. Our quadricep muscles and hip flexors are much stronger than our gluteus maximus and hamstring muscles. And it's simply because we use them more. Same thing can be said in the upper body for the chest, the anterior delta and bicep versus the upper back muscles, the back shoulder muscle and the tricep because we grab everything in front of us. So there are natural imbalances. Wow. When we stop standing and weight bearing, these imbalances are heightened because without standing up or doing walking or climbing or anything, my glute max and my hamstring has very little reason to contract. So that's where the sitting as a podcaster heightens the propensity towards the imbalance, which can lead to pain. So my answer to you is if you want to be a podcaster, you have to do three primary exercises, hip extension, hamstring curl, and hip abduction. These strengthen the gluteus maximus muscle, the butt muscle, the hamstring, and the hip muscle that's required for balance. If you simply do those, then you're going to sustain the imbalance and you'll keep those muscles at an equivalent level to your quads and your hip flexors, which will allow you when you do stand to use your body appropriately. Now, is that going to answer the idea that if you were a plumber or a carpenter, that your quads would probably be stronger than when you are as a podcaster? No, it's not going to fix that issue. But at least it'll fix it to where you could function as a podcaster and not end up having muscular caused pain in your mm. body. And that's all I could do for you for now. If you choose, then you could go on and do a high level of strength training 
to where you would be at a higher functional level. Yeah. And, and adding to that, one thing I'm planning on doing, because um, as I told you, I'm moving to Mexico. And when I get my, my next place, I'm going to be implementing a standing desk. I'm going to be getting rid of my my chairs and my normal desk. Um, one other option, a guy I follow, Ben Greenfield. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I really love him. But he, he does podcasting, too. He literally has a manual tri- treadmill. It's a silent treadmill. It's, it's like it's literally manual, so it doesn't have any technology. But he will like do podcasts. He'll he'll write things out while he's walking. So he's actually just yes. continually. So I've thought about that. So at least I want to implement a standing desk. And what I've heard is if you put one of your feet slightly elevated, it takes alleviates some pressure on your lower back. Right. Uh, so I've heard of that. So that's option A is just have a standing desk and you can even just kind of rock back and forth a little bit, almost do like figure eights with your pelvis. Uh, apparently that just helps keep things moving. Um, and then option two is if I can get my head around it and get one that's silent is get a silent treadmill that I can just kind of slowly walk because I think that will because because I like movement. I, I don't like sitting. Like already right now, my lower back is kind of in a little bit of a pain right now. Um, my mid back is tight. That's because I worked out yesterday. But like just, yeah, I want to get physical and standing and moving as I'm doing all the things I love to do in my life, you know? So let me, as a logician, address the two issues. So sitting has its own set of deficits, but... You notice throughout the history of mankind, nobody stood all the time yeah, either totally. because that has its own set of fun- of force requirements, right? So it's not that you want to change the force requirements for sitting or standing. It's that you want to have the force Balance. outputs. You need the force outputs of all the muscles required for the activities. So I don't really care if you decide that you want to sit all day or stand all day. You better do isolated strength training so that you have the strength for all those activities, right? Regardless of the activity. Treadmill on its own is an activity. And by definition, activity means you are using groups of muscles. So if there is a weak muscle that does not have the force output necessary to do that treadmill, your body's going to compensate. So you're going to do a treadmill. You're just not going to do it in the appropriate manner. And it's going to eventually lead to compensation to where muscles will break down. So treadmills are not an answer to not. You can't do a treadmill and get better at doing a treadmill. You can't walk if you have pain with walking and think you're going to walk better. You Mm. either get isolated strength in the individual muscles that are required or doing the activity simply leads to compensation. This Mm. is this is. If someone wants to understand my principles of what I've come to know, it's really simple. You have two choices in life living on earth. You either have a job that requires you to do, say, sitting a lot or whatever the type of movement it is, whether you have to stand for some reason, and you then do isolated progressive resistance strength training until all the muscles required for that activity have a greater force output, the ability to push up versus the required force, which is basically you sitting or standing against gravity so that they have enough force to offset that. So they don't strain. That's one choice or go back and become a plumber again, go back and be (laughs) a carpenter, go back and be a farmer 
to where you're on a daily basis, moving, pushing, bending, twisting, and all those things. And because you're doing it at a continuous level, your muscles sustain strength so that you can accomplish that. Mm. That's why no one had chronic pain up to the mid mid to late 1980s. Chronic pain never existed because throughout the history of mankind, everybody was still manual. Everything was manual. So so what I'm what I'm getting from you is that like part of this is balancing how much you stand, how much you sit, how much you walk, because these are not as I, I heard you say, these are not like strength exercise. These are just maintenance. They're, they're, they're just with withstanding the force of gravity. Right. And there's yes. there's something that is impacted on the body when you're because like the funny thing about me is I've actually been on both of these extremes. I was a lifeguard for seven years. So I would stand right. for six to eight hours on end pretty much. And I was not right. a sitting lifeguard. I was a standing lifeguard. Right. Right. So that fucks with your lower back too. Like that, if you're not moving all the time, if you're standing, that's hell on lower back. Right. Um, and then now I'm a podcaster. I'm sitting all the time. So I'm, I'm the opposite right. problem. So what I get from you is like, okay, balance how much you stand, balance how much you sit, balance how much you walk. So on one hand, just have a balanced profile of what your body is and how your body is being impacted by gravity. And then, uh, and then the second part of that, what I got is then you have to also strengthen those muscles because a carpenter not only was standing, but he was moving and strengthening all the muscles of the body in a balanced manner, or at least doing their best to. So part of it is balance the movement positions that you're statically doing a lot of the time. And then the second part is you have to have a strong body to with withstand the gravity when you're sitting, when you're standing and when you're walking and doing natural movements. Does that make sense? So the, the, the one thing I would add to that is if you are, let's say you, you just have to sit. You can't balance how much you sit and stand. Let's say you just have to sit. You're an IT guy. You, you're you doing coding. I don't know, yeah. coding or something. And the focus you need for that is just sitting here and doing that. The answer is beat the living shit out of your muscles that are required to allow you to sit. Take your force outputs to such a heightened level that it doesn't matter if you have to sit for 12 hours a day. You are conditioned for it. A big thing I try to get across to people is one of the more common statements people will have is, oh, um, I got tennis elbow or I've got golfer's elbow or I've got overuse. This phrase overuse. Everything is an overuse syndrome. And so what is the premise there? I'm using my muscles. That's not what it that's not true. It's not even close to true. What it means is, let's say you're on a computer and you're typing a lot and you have to support the weight of your arms. I don't think that the force requirement of typing varies greatly from day to day. I'm assuming it's somewhat static. So we have to assume that the force requirement is somewhat known. So you can't tell me it's overuse. To me, overuse means that it's changing so dramatically that I wasn't prepared for it. So overuse is really a false term. It's that you're understrengthened. The reality is, is you didn't have the strength to keep your arms up and type for eight hours. So it's not overuse. It's under strengthened. So if you came to me, I would strengthen all the muscles of the upper back, your triceps, all the muscles that support your arms. And then I wouldn't give a shit if you said, I want to sit here to type for eight to 10 hours. You're conditioned for it. So you wouldn't get an overuse syndrome because it was never overuse. It was under strengthened. 
You got to change your mindset as to where the problem is. It's not in doing the activity. It's in the ability to do the activity. I, I hear you. Now, now, now a question with that is, yeah. are, are there any movements uh, through repetitive action that can break down the body? If you if something is done in the same way too repetitively, the answer is if you're conditioned, the answer is no. Mm. You you must perceive evolution, God, whatever you want to believe in, has taken the human body over hundreds of thousands of years and developed it so that we could live in a gravitational environment. Your mm. body is designed to do this. There are overdevelopments of many. Your your meniscus is much bigger than it should be at. The, and you can't you can anticipate it's going to be smaller at the end of your life versus when you were born because it's designed to have wear some degree of wear. The body is designed this way. There are multiple muscles that might move you in one direction because it was understood. Maybe one muscle breaks down and another's available. So there is no such thing in my mind that you can condition you for. You say you want to climb Mount Everest. Let's condition you for it. There is no such thing as a limitation in activity. That is a foolish, foolish notion that impedes people from enjoying their life. I had a guy that came in. This is an amazing story. He had an ACL reconstruction, the ligament in the knee. And he is told by the orthopedist, hey, listen, I just want you to know going forward, you may never be able to run again. This was done in 2003. So this is almost 20 years ago. So what happens? The guy says in his head, shit, the guy said, I'm never going to run again. I'm not, and the guy likes to run. And so here it is. He comes to me because he has a particular issue and he happens to tell me the story. And I'm like, I don't even know what that statement means. What does that mean? You Because of an ACL reconstruction that you couldn't run. He replaced the ligament that's in the joint. That's all that it is. That's what the ACL reconstruction is. But ultimately, your ability to run is based on the knee being able to go through normal range of motion. Well, that wouldn't be affected by an ACL reconstruction, putting in the ligament, and then the strength to move the joint and support you. And that wouldn't have anything to do with an ACL reconstruction. So why would this person tell you that? And the answer is because he's assuming that there's going to be some level of failure, whether it's in the surgery or the rehabilitation. So when the guy still doesn't have full range of motion, it doesn't have his full strength and says, hey, doc, I can't I can't run. He's going to say, see, I told you. Wow. It's, it's, a, it's all, always a default. It's wow. a default to prevent against anyone coming back and say you didn't do the job as you said you yeah, were being sued or something. Correct. So he comes to me and I, I'm treating him actually because he has a heel issue. So I check. I say, yeah, let's let's check, man. So so I check his range of motion of his. Knee. It's 100 percent full. And then I'm muscle testing him and he's weak. He's got something, which is the reason he's having his pain. I'm like, I'm telling you now right now, my friend, in a couple of weeks, I'll have you strong enough. You want to run, jog, do whatever the hell you want. Your knee is fine. And he's like, what are you telling me? And I'm like, you should have never been told that. That was that was a lie. It was. It's baseless. There was no meaning to the statement. And I said, you just had 20 years. You would, you didn't run because you were told you thought you couldn't when, in fact, there's nothing stopping you from running. Mm. That's the kind of stuff that exists out there. Yeah, it, it, it makes me just think of like like our like one one challenge or one one issue I have with the way the world seems to work right now is um, there's a lot of like a lack of honesty. It seems like things are not transparent. Things are very opaque. And so much of the way people communicate in the world today is all about limiting liability. 
And it's like, and, and it's just, it's so pervasive. And, and like, you know how we talk about like trickle down economics? I almost see it as like trickle down brainwashing, like trickle, trickle oh. down apathy. It, it's just like, you know, when we're always being told things, not specifically, not from one human being to another, but one human being try to avoid liability and being sued it's like that just trickles down to all of us and we all we all just start to in some sense just we're always like kind of covering our asses in some sense and i I see that just a a big challenge a big issue with the way that society is structured right now um and i I like what you're saying because it just it makes sense like it it just makes sense like when i think about it like a lot of these if i could just Talk yeah. about the point you just made, which is so. Uh, this is a personal quest for me. Okay, so yeah, when we, I we've had conversations and we're both very spiritual. I think I was chosen for this by some higher power because of you. Look at my life sequentially. I am where I am because of where I was as a child, and it seems hard yeah. to believe that. I was taught the physics of weightlifting, which then becomes the basis by which I do everything going forward in treating people. And that's just arbitrary. It was just an accident. It's hard for me to accept that. So this is real personal. And I've treated a lot of people who were suicidal and it just becomes even that much more personal because this person's willing to kill themselves and you're the only thing stopping it. And it's really tough. So I really have taken this this concept of chronic pain on fully. And just imagine for 40 years, let's just say I'm right, that Mm. the MRI is baseless, right? For 40 years, all these people, how many people internationally, globally have committed suicide because they couldn't live with their pain, right? It's millions. How many people have lost their job because they couldn't work because of their pain? How many people have lost their wives and husbands and children? Because they could, I mean, it's monumental when you recognize this. So could anyone, let's say Joe Rogan has me on his podcast. (laughs) What many people hear about this? And there's a war that it is. Do you think that any government, any medical body or anybody could actually at this point be able to say, guys, right, man, it should have never been instituted. It is based on correlative theory. There is no justification. The answer is no, because the financial remuneration, there is not enough money in the world to pay wow. for everybody who's committed suicide, who have lost. You have to recognize that what I'm saying, this is a global phenomenon. One billion people worldwide suffer from chronic pain. 130 million Americans. A, whole, a whole industry would be dissolved. The, the entire, the main portion of the healthcare industry would be in jeopardy, right? Yeah. So- Let's now go to 2013. So chronic pain has just they, they, the American the, the the epidemic is out of control and the government has decided we need to really look at this. So the National Institute of Health, which falls under the National uh, the National Institute of Medicine, which falls under the National Institute of Health, the largest medical body in the United States, decides to look around. They establish, oh, my God, 130 million Americans suffering from chronic pain. It's costing the United States six hundred and thirty billion dollars a year. Just, you know, cardiovascular care costs four hundred billion. So this is way up at the top. The king of kings in the medical system now. They got to try to address the etiology of chronic pain. And you can't really go towards what I'm saying because the ramifications are so overwhelming. And here's what they decide to do. And in my opinion, the federal government, if I ever get this out, 
will be held complicit for this statement. They said that the reason that chronic pain exists is because no longer is your brain eliciting a signal associated with the tissue in distress. It is simply arbitrarily shooting off pain signals. It is purely arbitrary. The concept of pain being part of the body's feedback system to get the human to be aware of the stress of a tissue is no longer what's happening. It's simply arbitrary. Everybody is just shooting off pain signals in their brain, which by definition means the only way to address it, hypnosis or pain management. That's 2013. So what is the big picture premise? That now, since 2013, there is an acceptance that chronic illness, which is deterioration of a tissue, MS, cancer, any of these things, is now the equivalent of chronic pain, or chronic pain is the equivalent of chronic illness. It is nothing that can be done for it. Really? What do you think that does to the human psyche? Now it's just, I say- it's just, oh, you- it's just apathy. It's just- like you you're just get, you, get, you give up. Like you just yeah, you're at there, loss. There, there, there's no hope. No direction. There's no hope. No direction. Yep. Yep. And that's wow. what you see. So I treat people, and they've had multiple surgeries. They've gone through the pain management, and they basically say, "I get this is it. This is the what." For the first time ever in the history of medicine, failure is an acceptable outcome. And 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 th- and this is interesting. What are they saying is the cause of this? random pain signals being overloaded Nothing. in the brain. Nothing. There is to, that. You just said outside. You would think that they'd have to come up with this. <laughs> yeah, this a is, reason. This is a phenomenon. No longer is the... Now, here's the funny part. By the way, those people who still are having pain at the chest and the left arm, that's associated with the heart. That pain still is a signal. The person who's having lower back pain from the kidney stone, that pain is still correct. Or the herniated disc or the ACL meniscus. No pain from the neck, the back or any, that pain is just arbitrary out of your head. Then, 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 Then why do they do surgery on the meniscus tear and the, uh, Why do they do surgery on that if it's not going to change anything from their perspective? (laughs) Because I think that that was the way. I really think that that statement from the National Institute of Medicine was the way of basically giving cover for the United States government. Because who approved the use of the MRI? Who approved it? It had to be approved by somebody. The medical system can't just implement it. My suspicion is the FDA or some federal government, some there's a document saying we authorize this. Mm. And so they're going to just say, hey, man, we have no part of this as far as we're concerned. It's just stuff in the brain. What they're doing, that's that's their business. Wait, so you think they're distancing themselves from the liability of accepting that the MRI is a valid way of yes. figuring out about pain? Yes. Pain. You think they're distancing themselves from a previous statement or a previous thing they did? Well, I I think they first off, I think they have to. If this ever comes to fruition, and I do think it's going to come to fruition through a people's revolution. Yeah. People are really I I've been doing this for 30 years and I've treated a lot of suicidal people. As I mentioned, people are getting angrier. Yeah. People are really starting to get tired 
of this idea of keep going to the chiropractor, the physical therapist, the orthopedist, yep. neurologist, and I'm not getting better. And I hate yeah. to say it, but the COVID thing really took a high level. It really created suspicion amongst yeah. people and the medical establishment. And I think it's driving it farther and farther. And people are really starting to ask questions and looking for answers. And yeah. so I'm out here. I'm coming on your podcast. I'm going on these podcasts. And I think given the right opportunity, when the when the message hits the right mechanism, it's going to go out and people are going to be coming and they're going to be looking for answers and they're going to have to have some answers. And there are no answers. Mm. There are no answers. That MRI got implemented within no study. No study ever showed it. It's impossible. And, and the big the, the, the issue with this from your perspective is that it should have never been green lit to to treat uh pain it should never have been green lit to to create the reason why someone has pain because then they've done needless surgeries that have cost money they've put people on they've done needless surgeries then they've prescribed extremely expensive drugs because people have surgeries and it just keeps propagating this thing. And I'm guessing the more surgeries you do on the human body, it weakens the integrity of the human body, which is what you see when you have one surgery, there's more of a correlation to having another one later. Um, and it just, it, cause again, you're, it's, it's a massive trauma. Like my friend, um, I just had Greg Schmaus on the podcast and, um, he had, he was under anesthesia. That's the one where you essentially like you get right to the brink of death, right? In your yes. whole body. Yeah. So he says something really interesting happened to him. He was on put on anesthesia. And when he came back, he developed anxiety, OCD, and various other things. And so right there, he probably didn't need that surgery. It was probably based on what you're saying, potentially not, maybe not, but potentially he didn't need that surgery, which spiraled him down to get OCD and anxiety huh. and paranoia. Literally, he's like, dude, I woke up from it and I had all these issues, all wow. these mental issues that yeah. in the brain. And it was from being put under and then having the, having the surgery. Yeah. So, so, so my point is everybody accepts Hippocrates as the father of medicine. There is no one who disagrees. The Hippocratic method of establishing causation incorporated doing a, a complete history of the individual as to their symptoms, and then doing a complete physical evaluation. And the medical system followed that. Always did. If you go back to TV shows, look at Marcus Welby in the 1950s and 60s. Go into shows and you'll see in the 70s, everything was about interpreting symptoms. What happened when the MRI got implemented? Symptoms became obsolete. I don't care what your symptoms. I, everybody will tell you when they go to the doctor, the guy never, or the woman never even talks to me. I'm in there for two minutes. They say, where's your pain? They say, here's a prescription for an MRI and come back. When we get the impressions back, we'll discuss it. Right? You must recognize symptoms are, are the body's emergency feedback mechanism to allow you to know which tissue is in distress literally eliciting those symptoms. So the only way to truly understand what's causing a problem or what tissues in distress is to interpret symptoms. Pictures don't interpret symptoms. Pictures show structural variations that may have existed for decades and have mm. nothing to do with the symptom that's being created. Wow. 
Wow, that's wild. And and now to to, to pivot, I have another question. Um, sure. and, and it's okay if you don't have an answer to this. This might be out of your, your area of expertise. But what do you think the relationship is between physical pain and mental health? And, and I literally mean signals in the body, not apathy. I literally mean like you have a, a physical pain in the body and it can affect your mental chemistry or affect your, your mental chemistry in some way. Is there any information? So I think that there's a very strong connection between the two. Here's the thing. Let's just be very clear about this. So there's this guy, John Sarno, who's this big guy that a lot of people go when you have to understand when the medical system fails, everybody's out there seeking something. And this guy comes in and he's from New York. He's a big wig guy. And what he's saying is straight out. No questions asked. That pain is not physical. There is no such thing as physical pain. It's all mental. It's repressed thought from when you were a child. And so if I have pain at my left knee, Although the pain is at my left knee, it's because my mommy didn't give me a lollipop when I was eight. And somehow that's coming out at my left knee. And my point, you got to see I'm a logician. You must understand I'm a logician. So if that's what you're saying, that the pain at your left knee is coming because you're mad that your mommy didn't give you the lollipop when you're eight. My question is, how about your right knee? Is your right knee OK because she was you're OK with her giving the lollipop? I don't understand. How could you be unhappy and it's causing pain at the left knee, but the right knee isn't having pain, which by definition would be you are happy about the lollipop issue. So how do you have the two? You can't. So that's wacky. I don't go with that concept. There is physical pain. There's mental pain and there's spiritual pain. They are. There's no question. And all three, physical, spiritual, mental, all must exist, coexist at the same time for you to be a complete individual. Okay, now I'll give you examples of three, you know, two kinds of things. Here's a Vietnam vet who saw some really bad stuff and he gets home and he lays in bed because he is crippled. He cannot come out of that room because of and he ends up having back pain. I would suggest you worry less about his back pain and try to get that guy's emotional and spiritual level to something higher. And I'll bet you that once you do that and that guy comes out of that room, that back pain resolves. Didn't okay? wait, Hold on a second. Didn't yeah. you just say that you thought that was wacky, though, when the other guy said it? No, 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 no. He's saying that no pain, no pain oh, whatsoever. Oh, got hey, this you. This guy has back pain. Got his back pain you. I'm not denying. If I press on his uh, back, he's going to go through the roof. Got right? you. Okay, I see what you're saying. It, what's causing it is his complete distortion of reality. Yeah. And so as a result, he's laid in a cocoon situation and that causes back pain to resolve. Okay, uh, okay. I I that that makes sense because because I've you know, again, one guy that I, I hold in very high esteem is Paul Check. He he's a very yeah. masterful man in this and he will talk about how like, you know, you can be stressed. Like let's sure. say like you're mentally stressed, you can literally feel like certain muscles contract in the body. Like sure. there is there yes. is an effect. And so uh, so I think I'm getting your point that it's like they're connected, but physical pain can be physical and mental and, and, and emotional pain can create physical pain. It can create or at least or, or, or at yeah. least it can create muscle tension in the body, which creates muscle tension, which creates muscle pain. So it's like it's and also at the same time, you can have physical tension, which creates um, again, physical pain. You can have mental tension that creates physical tension that creates like, so it's like, it's a very, from what I've gathered from what you're saying, it's a very free flowing road 
And there's a lot of ways that physical pain can end up in the body because there is, again, a lot of spiritual people will say like the mind and the body are connected. Like if you want right. to under, if, if you want to understand how healthy someone is in the mind, you can probably look in some sense at their body and figure uh, out where they, where they tend. Now, now you're describing my presence. So anybody ever asked me, how you feel? How do you feel? Well, I'm 220 pounds, six foot with a 33 inch waist. You got to assume I'm feeling pretty good. Right. And so my point is that there is spiritual life, there's emotional life and there's physical life. They all are intertwined and all must be at a heightened level for you to be whole. Right. Mm. To understand which you need to address is to understand the symptom based essence of it, which is not symptom based just physically, but it could be emotionally and spiritually. So I take a baseball bat and I hit you in your knee and now you're (laughs) crippled for the next three months and you can't stand up. You can't walk. You can't do anything. I'm guessing you're going to become a little depressed. Yeah. But do you think that I should address your depression to resolve this or should I resolve the pain at the knee that came from me hitting your baseball with that baseball bat? Right. Mm. So you got to understand the etiology. You got to understand yes. the symptoms. And that is my point to everybody. I'm not denying that there's an intertwining of them. Yeah. I am saying that a wholeheartedly. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there's not times you have to treat physical, not times, but you got to understand it by understanding the yeah. person they got where they are and, and yeah find the genesis point is, yes. the, is the genesis point mental is the genesis point spiritual is the genesis point physical because again That's- if some if someone has no drive in life if they if they're spiritually dead they have no mission they have no purpose they have no dream that will create a cascade of effects in the physical body and the emotional body and then of course that person's it- maybe never going to get out of bed right so they become very very weak I'm not saying that it's not a nice thing to get that guy on an exercise program, but if that guy never gets out of bed, what's the point of the exercise program? You got to fix that guy's drive. Um, Now, here's an interesting question that I don't expect you to technically have the answer to because it's a pretty wild question. But so you just established there's physical, there's emotional, there's spiritual, right? So from what I just described, like let's take someone who has no dream. That's You could call that a spiritual issue. It would make sense logically for me looking at this from my perspective that the cascade would happen from the spiritual to the emotional to the physical. Um, Do you think it's always physical, emotional, spiritual, or do you think there's more like a triangle where depending on where the issue lies, it can go in any um, chronological order of cascading events? Or is it always physical, emotional, spiritual, or spiritual, emotional, physical? Or do you think it can go spiritual, physical, emotional? Do you know what I'm trying to say? What if I said that it's more of a circle and it can kind of go any way, man, around the circle? I don't know which way. So here on the circle is spiritual, here's emotional and here's physical. Well, if it's uh, the spiritual could affect the emotion, you know, it's it's on a circle. They're, they're all kind of going at the same time. And so resonates. I don't I would never say that that one always goes in one path. I think people are too complex to to accept that concept. Hey, no, thank you. That resonates. The moment you said that, and you, like my my truth buzzer just went ding, ding, ding. I was like, that oh, that cool. was that was the missing piece of information. That's really cool. It's like a circle. 
I yeah. love that because I studied political science in university and we also looked at totalitarianism, communism and these different issues that they're actually a circle, a circle that fascism actually turns into communism at a certain point and right. communism turns into fascism. Right. And it, it's, it's fascinating just, again, when you look at everything in a circle rather than a line, rather than a linear yeah. progression. Very fascinating. Now um, we're going to jump. Actually, before we jump on to another topic, is there anything else you want to talk about in this topic with chronic pain? Anything? Is there anything you want to jump on before we um, switch gears? Uh, I would simply make one point, and that's to those who are really in distress uh, because of I, I've treated so many people who are suicidal. Just never give up is my message to anyone who's having pain, no matter how many treatments you've had, no matter how many people you've seen. There is a solution there. In my mind, I believe there is an answer to every question. And so never give up, please, for God's sakes, believe that there is an answer to your problem. Just keep getting out there. Keep trying. And at some point you will find your solution. It's really important to never give up. Mm. And I know this is very personal for you. I know when we when we had our first meeting conversation, I think you started crying when you were talking about just how much pain people are in and how much pain you were in and how you changed your life. So I know that probably the, the listeners don't understand that, but I've seen you in tears about how much you care about this stuff. So you're very, you're a very passionate, open-hearted human being. That's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Not because, not only because of your intelligence, but I just, I see such a high degree of integrity within you. Um, and I value that immensely. Um, appreciate it. Absolutely. And now another question I have, and we can go out of pain in this degree, but what do you think are, what do you think is at least one of the biggest issues the world faces right now? You can give one issue, two or three, but what do you think are the biggest issues the world is facing right now? And what do you think is your role in coming up with a possible solution? All right. So my biggest, the thing that I think has destroyed the world in the last 30 to 40 years still falls in to the category of technology, and that is the advancement of social media. I think it has destroyed the, cult, the, the social and human fabric of society. Basically, if you go back, everyone always talks about the, the um, 1930s and the greatest generation. These were humble, loving people with very basic moral principles. I would do anything for my neighbor because I know that guy or that woman would do anything for me. I would only want to provide joy and love and, and, and assistance to anybody. And that was the attitude. And I will always try my hardest because I know the best I could do for anybody is my, is my hardest. And I never want anything more in pay than what my work was worth. That's what I think. Fair day's work for a fair day's pay. That is gone, completely gone. The idea of a human being a, a humble, loving, caring person is gone. It is all about one ups, upsmanship on social media. Everything has been limited to 30 second bumper sticker types of talk. There is nobody who understands anything about what they're talking about. But as long as you're able to have an opinion and have it out there, then people think there's value in your opinion. And I try to get people to understand an opinion is nothing like anything different than an asshole. Everybody's got one. That doesn't mean you should be showing it to everybody. <laughs> 
Oh, man, that, 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 that's interesting. Here's a, I'll play devil's advocate on the social yeah, media please. thing because I agree. I, I, I see social media personally as a tool and I think as a tool is a catalyst. And I think that it can be used as a catalyst for the destruction of morals and society and culture as you're talking about. But I also, also think it's beautiful. Um, I think at the same time, those of us that are using it to bring out information like podcasts and information like what you're talking about, even the simple fact that, you know, there was a time where if a if a corrupt, you know, Hitler, right, a corrupt government, a corrupt institution, they used to have the full monopoly on truth, that all truth would go through their newspapers, their their avenues, right? I think in some sense, social media is beautiful because it's it's broken as decentralized information and again massive problems to that because now any crackpot in his mom's basement can create false information um misinformation um so again there's there's massive issues and i agree with you and at the same time i think it's such a massive tool for liberation if used positively um even like just bringing out yeah just truth and, and showing lies like again it would have been so difficult a hundred years ago to portray all of the information. Like Joe, look at Joe Rogan. Podcast is in some sense a form of social media, or YouTube yes. is a form of social media. And when Joe Rogan goes on and he calls out these corrupt institutions like Pfizer or whatever, like we never had that opportunity, or at least the opportunity to do that was very difficult to do on the scale it's able to do today. It would have to be this grassroots movement that would take years or whatever time period it would take. But now we can have 15 million views, 15 million people tune into a piece of information in two hours. So from my perspective, I'm with you. I think that, you know, social media is a tool that can be used for great, great negative um, for humanity. But I think it can also be one of the avenues that liberates our species from tyranny and from all of these problems with control in the world. You know what I mean? I agree with you 100 percent. Everything you're saying is true. The difference and, and giving information is great. Here's the difference. You will say based on what you're talking about, this is my opinion and I'm all good with that. Don't ever come out and say this is fact because true. I said that's what's changed. I agree. What has changed is that people are not required to provide facts. Facts are two plus one equals three or that color is blue. That is non-debatable. And that's why facts are never used. But if uh, I am not very smart and I don't really have a lot of facts, I will say that blue is pretty. And I will tell you uh, anyone who says blue is not pretty is an asshole. But that's an opinion, my friend. And as I said, you have an opinion just like the people who think red is pretty. And so why are you debating this as if you're discussing facts? It's mm. not facts. And that's what's happened. The world is now comprised of people who think their opinion is fact. And that is so distorted. And that's why there's such animosity. If everybody was discussing two plus one equals three, you couldn't have a debate and there wouldn't be animosity. There wouldn't be hatred. The whole premise of politics is made up. It's made up. It's farcical. It's it's opinion. There's no theory to most of what's being done. It's opinion based. 
And so I say my opinion is fact and you have an alternative, then you're an idiot, but not because you have an opinion. You're, yeah. You don't have the right to the opinion. And then what's happened is the world has now made certain people supposedly have a greater opinion. You go on the show, The View, and those women you think have a greater opinion than the bum on the street? It's equal. It's equivalent. There's no difference. It's an opinion. Everyone has an opinion. So why do I give a shit what that woman says? Why do I care what anyone says? If it's an opinion, what do I give a shit? Their opinion's as good as my opinion. What do I care? I only care about facts. I don't Mm. listen to people's opinions. I never have. I'm a logician. I only know what's fact. I only base everything I do and say on fact. Everything we have discussed so far, have I not backed it up with some level of statistic, with some level of empirical evidence that showed what that I said is 100% true? Right. I didn't for the, just for, the, for the most part. Yeah. Like as soon as we got into the social media, we're more into opinions. No, no, that's different. That's different. Yeah. I'm talking about my area of chronic pain where I describe myself as an expert. I, I, absolutely. Uh, d- yeah. Definitely. It, yeah. it, it checks out. And another uh, I want to add to your point about social media because it just occurred to me. Um, another issue with social media objectively is that the algorithms seem to reward Again, kind of like what you were talking about, animosity. Um, sure. fa- Facebook will like if you're a Democrat, it'll show you Republican stuff. It's it's trying to create a. That's the that's one of the issues with social media is that it is the algorithms are able to create a worldview. It's Correct. not it's not as simple like YouTube used to be. At one point, just I put a video on YouTube, and it's on YouTube, right? But now there's curation, and now YouTube gets to take all the videos. And put them in an order that creates a narrative. So there's right. literally social media used to be just I say this, you see I say that, and that's it. You have to find me organically and naturally. Right now, right. everything is what the power of narrative and and order, chronological order, is being weaponized. And I think Correct. that that is absolutely a challenge with social media, and you're seeing different platforms try to look at this different ways like youtube is high, is the most curated out of all of the online video platforms and then you have things like odyssey or rumble or, or various yes. bit shoot different ones where they're trying different ways of how do we how do we introduce new things to people because one challenge is if if there is no algorithm how will anybody find my podcast right Essentially, like, like obviously, there's grassroots. There's, I have a mom. My mom likes my podcast. My mom shows my podcast to her friend. Her friend likes it. Like, there's obviously that. But the way things get popular nowadays, that is way too slow. And, and, and also, one thing about human beings, it seems, is that we don't always share things. If you think about it, there's a lot of things that I love that no one knows I love. You know what I mean? I'll throw on an Iron Maiden record or something and just listen mm-hmm. to it. And I love it, but I don't necessarily tell my mom about it. I don't tell my dad about right. it. Like, so that is one challenge with solely relying on grassroots word of mouth is that some people just don't have an incentive to share something. So this is where it's a really interesting thing that I think with curation is how do you allow new things to be found and new things to be presented without creating such a narrative structure and tiering the recommended list in a certain way. Um, 
And obviously a lot of it is not even about chronological narrative or structure. It's not, it's not actually like, okay, we want to create this worldview. A lot of it is simply just, you like this, um, you're probably like that. And then it just takes right. people into their own rabbit holes. If you're into UFOs, yeah. you go down the UFO rabbit hole. If you're into Donald Trump's an asshole, you go down that Donald Donald Trump's an asshole route. If you think Hillary Clinton's an asshole, it like YouTube just kind of takes you down whatever echo chamber you're trapped in. And I think that's also a challenge. Even every it's a challenge for everybody. It's a challenge for me too. Because what YouTube does is it makes me more entrenched in my worldview. Even if I think my worldview is correct, even if I think I'm right, YouTube will essentially just confirm and confirm and confirm and confirm till I don't believe there's any possibility I could be wrong. Correct. And the challenge is all of us are being funneled into these echo chambers that create these wars because then we go into the real world and we start spouting this information that we've seen on YouTube and these rabbit holes and these Instagram rabbit holes. And we've lost this ability to just communicate and be like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. It's like, no, I already know all about it and you're wrong. And you're wrong because I've seen 30 videos on that. And I think that is a really big challenge in society right now. So here's my answer to everything you've said. Live a small life. That's my answer. What I have come to realize is that stuff, I can't fix that. YouTube's YouTube. It's Google. It's owned by Google. Multi-billion dollar company. When eventually it comes down to where there's a better way of getting it out, I mean, I'll still put them on. I put videos on and stuff like that. But my attitude is I can't get angry about something I can't control. So you know what? I'm going to be like you and I'm going to tell my mom about this thing that I do. And we're going to hope that she tells a friend and I'm going to try to tell as many of my mom's friends. And I'm going to do the best I can under my circumstances. And I'm going to be happy because what I do, you love doing your podcast. I love making people be out of pain and I'll be happy to get one person a day doing and I'm good with all that stuff. And if it ends up eventually getting out and being a billion people, God bless. But in the meantime, I'm going to be happy within myself because I control my little world. And that's something that I can make be happy for myself. And that was one of my big changes in my enlightenment that developed four years ago. Stop mm. looking at the world order unless you have the power, unless you're the pope or unless you're somebody who has this capacity to change the world. Stop thinking that you're going to somehow by thinking about the world, change it. You're not. You're not. And being coming angry and frustrated is going to make you have a quality life. So yeah. try to stay small for now. Do the same stuff. Do the things you want to do that you think might change the world. But stop looking at it in that order. And in the meantime, on a daily basis, try to make yourself happy. Do yeah. the things you love to do. And the fact is that if you really love doing what you do and it really is important, it's probably going to get out and it's probably going to change the world. Mm. That's powerful, man. Yeah, I think I think sometimes even like myself in like I'm 27. So like I'm still in my my young adult phase. Yeah. And there's still a certain level of like ambition that drives me in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it, sometimes it can be hard to let go, like to do what you say, like just. Don't I know get, it, man. Don't, don't I know it. I'm on up. the other side. I'm 61. I've gone through all that stuff. And I'm telling you, if you want to save yourself and not be at 60, 55, or 56, like I was burnt out and angry. Find enlightenment now, man. Find peace. It's good. You're doing good stuff. It's great what you're doing. You're a good guy. You, nice you're man. trying to make the world a better place. But do that under the confines of whatever it takes to make me happy. That's uh, primary. That's primary. I'll keep doing this stuff, but I can't do that stuff in lieu of 
me being happy and doing the things about myself and having the people around me that make me happy. That actually makes me better being a warrior. Right. But if I'm a warrior and that warrior attitude is such that I'm not feeling deprived or I'm not meeting expectations, you're going to be a miserable, unhappy person and you're not good for anybody. And I was there and I can tell you I lived it and it's a Mm. bad place to be. Thank God I found enlightenment. I came out on the other side. So I look at me at 61 and I see you as 27. I see, please, please think about what I'm saying. Listen to what happened for my enlightenment. Don't be me. Don't be me to 55 or 56. Do your thing. It's all great. Ambition, nice, cool. But ambition without joy and happy as a person, you're going to be a very empty person for a very long time. And you're going to look back in another two decades and say, shit, why did I waste all that time angry and frustrated? I don't have a friend. I don't have a relationship. I don't have anything. That was me. Not yeah. a good place. To bad, hey. bad place to be. Bad place to wake up at. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, man. Um, I, I can definitely notice in, in your words, um, probably my nightmare scenario um, would be essentially having ambition be the primary driver for the next 20 years. And essentially, I'm not living my life for 20 years. I'm li- living in the future of what I want to accomplish. Because, like, I- I'm not frustrated and angry. Like, that's something, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty chill guy. But the ambition will str- – I, I can get stressed. That's something that happens to me is I can get stressed and I can not live in the moment and live in the future. So what I'm getting from you is like, yeah, the ambition's beautiful, but like tailor it to the moment. Like part of that ambition is just know like you will do good things. You know what I mean? Like you don't need to be like, I think a lot of ambition is actually fear. I think it's if I don't focus on this ambition all the time, it won't happen. So it's like trusting is like, hey, man. You're going to do some good stuff. Just enjoy your life while it's happening. Like, Here's the gig, though. It, yeah, I just want to point like what you're just saying. You see, if you get caught up in your ambition, that relates to anticipation and expectation. Yes. And what that is, is that's thought. That's thought. Oh, I want to do this. I want to do this. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? How am I going to? Well, if you're thinking about that, how could you be living in the moment, doing the thing that you need to do to make that happen in the future? You can't. You're thinking about it. You're thinking about what you have to do in the future. So if you get caught up in ex- expectation and anticipation, you're not living in the moment. And the only way you were ever going to achieve this incredible thing was for every moment to do the very best you could. Well, you just stopped yourself because you're too caught up on the anticipation and expectation of it. Yeah, It's living in thought, not living in the moment. So I live every day. I wake up like I my eyes open. I'm like, what is today going to bring? I, I cannot wait to see what's going to happen. I even told my daughter, oh, my God, I'm going to be doing this podcast. I talked to this guy. He's a cool guy. I can't wait to dive it. Right. I treated somebody. I, I flower. I watered some plants. Right. <laughs> I'm not even thinking about what tomorrow is. I'm just thinking about the joy that's going to come from today. And it's helping me have a more fulfilling life. To be very honest with you, time was flying by. Time goes so slow for me now. Really? Completely, completely. I read because I'm relishing every moment. I'm in the moment when you are in the moment 24 hours a day. Boy, does it slow down. And the joy that comes from every moment is just enhanced and you have a better quality of life. Wow. That, that's that's really that's inspiring to me, man. I, I, I think I needed to hear that. Yeah. To just relax and enjoy the moments and know that it'll turn out just Again, like, you know, as I told you before, like, I'm, I'm psychic. So I talk to my soul every morning and higher self and stuff. And 
you know, it always gives me what I need to know. Like, I get like, no. hey, should we go to Morelia tomorrow? Yes. Okay, cool. Like, you know, I don't have to worry about this in the future. So right. thanks, man. Because I, I want to, yeah, like, you know, I, I want to be your age and also have time go slow. I want to be able yeah, to ma. enjoy, you know, my future family one day without getting too much into that. Like, I know it'll happen. I know I'll meet whoever I'm supposed to meet and have the kids I'm supposed to have. Um, thanks, man. That's um, yeah, man. I, I see. I see you and me as I was. And I took the bad road and I don't want you to take that bad road. I don't. It's not just about frustration. It's about living in the future and trying to live your dreams before they're real. Don't yeah. don't do that. That's thought. Thought isn't real. The only way you're going to really experience life is to be in the moment and and be fully engaged. That's how everything is felt so much more so much fuller that's how you get the most out of it and that's how you become more successful mm. amen dude and that okay so, <laughs> so now, now 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 we're going to be going into the rapid fire round so sure. i have t- two questions for you and you have yeah. 30 seconds to a minute to answer each one sure. um so the first of which is if you could go back in time to your darkest moment in your life with what you know now what message would you give yourself well, it's kind of my darkest. I've had multiple dark moments, but it would be the message I told that I told you that I got to that dark moment because I was living in the future with such levels of expectation and anticipation that when they didn't achieve what they did, it will now feed on you and make you think you're a bad person. It's not just it's failure makes you question your self-worth. And so when you fail enough, you start hating yourself. And eventually I got to the point of really, really hating myself. And so when that happens, you're not just not good for yourself. You're not good for your wife. You're not good for your child. You kind of mope around. You have no interaction. It's a terrible, terrible place to be. And when you do it enough, you think you're never going to get out of it. And it's really, really a scary place to be. And strangely enough, I got so bad that my wife kicked me out. My ex-wife kicked me out. And it was actually at that moment that it was like a sledgehammer hit me. And it suddenly made me awaken, literally come out of my body, see myself and say, you have been living in the future this whole time. You have been living in failure and, and things that just didn't happen just because they didn't happen. You think you hate yourself. You're making a mistake. You have to stop living that lifestyle. Live without expectation. Just be yourself. Love yourself and everything else will come from that. Live in the moment. This is exactly the mechanism by which I found my enlightenment. And a lot of bad things that happened to me over the course. I I, I lost my job in construction. I, I lost my business when I had a physical therapy. And it always came back to the same thing. I lived in the future. When the future didn't hit, it made me say, I hate myself. You're a crappy, shitty person. And it brought me to very, very dark places. And I didn't realize I was living my life that way almost until I was like 55 or 56, until I found that enlightenment. And now going forward, it's been four years. I have not had an unhappy day. Not one, not a sad day, not an unhappy, nothing joyful. I live a blissful life because I live for the moment. Whatever the future will be, will be. And I'll get there when I get there. But I know that my best future will only be my best future if I live my best moment. 
And my best moment is being joyful and engaging in whatever it is at the moment. Right now, it's a podcast. Eventually, I got to treat somebody. Eventually, I got to pick my daughter. And it's just one thing at a time. And so to me, that is the greatest, greatest message I can give to anybody. It's not about pain. It's not. It's about living your best life. Learn to live in the moment. Live without expectation or anticipation. Just have the best moment you can have. And when you put all those together, I promise you in the future in 20 years, you will have seen you had the best life. Mm, beautiful. And now the last question, and this is yeah. more specifically with you, because um, I find so is this question of what do you think is the difference or relationship between passion and anger? And the reason why I ask this is you're a very passionate person. And sometimes to the untrained eye, people might think that you were constantly in a state of anger because you're so passionate. So for you, because you know yourself better than anyone else does, what do you think is that? Like, like, like this podcast, like you'll just, you'll get so into it and passionate. So what do you think is that relationship between passion and anger? So passion is an emotion which simply shows engagement, the level by which I'm willing to commit myself. And obviously it's the greatest thing everybody says to me within three minutes, my God, your passion. It, it's My passion represents my engagement level, my willing to commit, my willing to be so vulnerable to tell you things about myself, nobody in the wildest dreams would ever tell you, but to be so vulnerable that I'm willing to give it all because it's so important to me that you understand what I'm trying to get. And it's so important to me that you be able to get the resultant that I'm trying to get. That to me is what passion is about. And it's a maybe the one of the most intense emotions that exists. Wow. Okay. Anger is where it, it's really applied in a negative fashion. It's passion applied negatively. Huh. I think there is nobody in their mind that would say, I'm angry at you when I'm telling you about this. It's actually love. Hmm. I am exuding love in a passionate manner. My love for the fact that I was given this higher power, my love for the fact that that higher power has entrusted me with the gift of getting you out of pain, the love that I see on that person's face after they've gotten the resolution and they have their life back. That's what I'm sharing. My passion is in the form of love. Anger is negative. You, there's nobody who comes in here and says, wow, I think he's really mad at me. Or, or Because ultimately they sense it's just my desire to transfer this love and knowledge to the individual. So I think passion is just the, is the representation of intensity but the emotion that I'm giving with my passion is actually love. It's not anger. Uh, so what, what I get from that is just like people often say that excitement and nervousness is the same frequency channeled two different ways. From what you just said, I almost get like anger and passion are the same frequency, which is like intensity channeled. And passion is intensity, ch intensity channeled through love and yes. anger is intensity channeled through disconnection. Yes. So like, yeah, I, I think that's a good way to look at it. Mm, cause yeah. Cause like, like, like I said, it's intense. Like listening to you for the last hour and a half is an intense 
powerful experience. Like it's a powerful experience, but it's intense. It's like there's a lot of energy coming my way. And because my father was a very intense human being, I can sometimes be slightly uncomfortable with that frequency. It's a lot for me because, again, so much of the time it was anger. It was that intensity that was just chopping me down. Right. And so it's interesting. And it's nice being around people like you that are just so clean in your passion, so clean in your intensity, because it helps me go, okay, I think I'm understanding this more. It's not always negative. It's not always hurtful. It's not always painful. It can, it can be enlivening. You know what I mean? Just being around you. I'm like, this guy is full of life. Wow. He's like living life right now. I could tell you one other thing about that. That might be true. So I live without, I have no ego. Uh, enlightenment leads you to have the understanding you have no ego. I'm simply an entity. I'm a conduit by which this information passes through to you. If we are in an engaged situation, I need nothing from you. You don't have to stroke my ego. I don't have an ego. So I think that's part of where the difference between love being exuded and, and anger is exuded. Anger is somehow a representation of I'm angry at you and I'm empowering, you know, I'm, I'm imparting myself on you. Yeah. I don't have an entity. Um, I have no ego. <laughs> I don't I'm simply a conduit. So that's why when 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 I do this and and people might see an intensity in it, uh, eventually I'll tone it down and I'll try to find the level by which that individual feels more comfortable. If I see, I mean, I'm obviously looking at people's facial expressions. If I see that, I'm like, well, you know, let me just redefine this in a way. And and I always will try to incorporate joking into it. And I'm always trying to match. I always will start intense because I have no choice. <laughs> if I am being used by this. My responsibility is to do this. And when you understand the choice between me and what else is out there, it's a very dangerous choice. So but ultimately, as I go through this, I always try to match the individual and I always try. There's always joking involved. And um, eventually I'll actually always say, so did you enjoy the session? <laughs> did you did you find it amusing? Because there'll be a lot of laughter and I play music and and um Ultimately, you get that perfect balance of, wow, I just learned so much, but I learned it in a way that I think I really got it from you. And and I really enjoyed it. I really feel like I connected with you. And so it's the full concept. And mm. so obviously, if I was angry, the person would disconnect right away. And they that's the other point is if they're angry, how are they going to get what I'm trying to give them? So yeah. I could never do it within anger. It has to be done in love. Yeah. Well, one thing I noticed interesting about you when I'm talking to you is um, that level of intensity, I can I can sometimes, when, when it's not clean, like when it's slightly angry or you can feel when some people are trying to impart themselves on you. You, you can just feel yes. that. A lot of the time I will go essentially cold as stone. I'll wall my heart off. I'll, I'll wall yes. my ability to empathize off. Right. Um, as a, just a safety mechanism so that I don't take in other people's energy. Because right. I'm, I've, well, I'm very, I'm very, I'm very empathic by nature. So I soak up vibe. What I notice about you is you're very intense and you're very passionate. Um, but I, I feel, I feel safe like with you, like, like, you know, uh, to disagree if I ever have a disagreement where, and even the way I disagree, I can do it in a solid. It's, it's interesting to see how my vibration subtly shifts with different people. Like with you, I'm very, oddly enough, I'm very calm with you in a way that's really different. 
because usually with intense people, I become more intense. But right. with you, I'm actually really calm and, and it's strange. And I feel there's, and I, I, I told this to another guest I had, but it feels like you have a lot of intensity, you have a lot of energy, but there's this interesting thing where it doesn't feel like it's crossing a boundary in, in me. It feels like I'm able to maintain a sovereignty and it's very clean. And so anytime I, I disagree or I have another opinion, I can do I can do so very confidently and very calmly. Some people I, I some people are so intense and it's it's leaking. It's like yep. it's leaking. It's like toxic sludge is leaking. And I can get a bit sporadic and my energy can kind of go, well, what well, what what like and I'll start to but with you calm it's like as much as there's so much intensity in the conversation there's a sereneness around the intensity which is actually i think all to do with you um so that's that's a compliment that i i think about you is that yeah you have a clean passion a very clean passion now another another curiosity that i had when you said you have no ego um because immediately my kind of bells in my head ding 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 i was like ooh someone thinks they don't have an ego structure. Um, mm -hmm. Either they're aware of something I'm unaware of, or I have got what they said. Uh, I didn't understand them correctly. Because from mm -hmm. my perspective, because like I've had channeling experiences before, or essentially I've had flow state experiences where your ego is kind of gone in that moment, especially channeling, your ego has gone. You're just an open vessel for the divine. Flow state is kind of similar too. A lot of the time your mm -hmm. ego is kind of dissipated and in as your ego dissipates, it gives more room for source to flow through you. And when your ego is very strong and solid, there's no room for source to flow through you. Um, and so when, when you make a, a, a statement like I have no ego, are you saying in the moment when I'm in flow and in channeling, I have no ego or like, do you never have an ego ever? Like, what's your perspective on that? I try I, I as to be enlightened is to have no ego is to say that I warrant nothing from the world. Um, people who have ego have the constant you have to constantly have it. Um, everything in Validated. life revolves around you. So a classic example is my sister in law, my ex sister in law used to say when it rained, it rained because God was trying to make her have trouble going to tra tra having traffic to go to work. That's uh... why it rained. It rained because God was trying to punish her. That's mm. an ego. That's taking everything in the world and attaching it to you. I don't have any of that. I have no need for that. So a, an example of it is if I'm with my daughter and she doesn't say I love you, the average person takes that as a personal attack because they have an ego and they need that to stroke them. And as a result, they say, oh, you got to say I love you because I need you to say I love you because I need to have that to make I don't say that. I say, well, maybe she forgot or maybe she whatever. Mm. But that's that's her issue. That's not me. I love me. I love myself. I love her. And that's all that matters. I don't need that to make me be a whole. Mm. That's what it comes down to. I am whole simply as I am. I require nothing outside of me to make me be any better and more joyful in my life. Everything mm. else is purely a bonus extra on top. Gotcha. Interesting. So I think we use different terminology because because I've thought about this before in my zeitgeist, in my understanding, I call that having a pure ego, essentially an, an ego without the trauma and the wounds that would usually like because I, I see like in, in my methodology, the way I, I look at the cosmos and the universe, my definition at the moment, this could change in the future, but my, my current definition for the ego is the is the container that houses the soul. So essentially mm -hmm. it's like, it is the structure because again, 
our egos, my ego is Anton Zakor, your ego is Mitchell Yass. Like there is some part of us that knows we have an identity. We know we're disconnected from other people. We also know we're connected. But like, right. I, I don't think we'd ever have the experience where you'd you'd, you'd literally almost walk through me because you don't think I exist. So there, right, right. from my standpoint, the ego is the things that sees distinctions. In some sense, that's how I view the ego is the thing that sees and, and innately understands distinctions between things. Um, and I think where a lot of people, when they say, oh, you have a big ego, um, I think from my standpoint, what they're saying is your ego is not pure. You have a tainted ego. You have a conditioned ego. You have a wounded mm -hmm. ego. You have a traumatized ego, which causes the ego to not just be a container anymore. It is a container that wants things, needs things, yes. demands of things. So, what, yes. so I think I think you're kind of talking about that, but your yes. way of, of expressing that is I have no ego, where my way of expressing that would say my ego is purified, almost like yes. a purified ego. You know sure, I mean? sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Okay, cool. Yeah. I agree, yeah. I, I have it, but if you want to describe ego as the thing that contains me, spiritual and all, yeah, uh, I mean, I'll accept that um, as the definition, um, but but that it warrants nothing outside of simply being. I hear you. Th that makes sense. I just, I wanted to clarify that for both myself and any listener, because, you know, like e even me, I, I can't speak for other people, but I know with me, like if I heard a podcast where I really liked somebody, and I, I thought somebody was like, my truth buzzer was going off a lot. And then the, the last statement they said in a podcast was like, I have no ego. That would immediately like, ooh, okay, I need more information on this. Because yeah, yeah. that could be almost like a schizophrenic statement, almost yeah. like, like slightly. slightly <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 so and everything you just said makes perfect sense. Like like when, you, when you're describing egolessness as a state in which I don't need anything from anybody and that I am right. a clear channel and a flow state yes. for the divine. I'm like, I get that. Like I, I've been in that, like for me, it's more momentary. Like for the most part, my ego still has wounds. It still has traumas. A oh. lot of the time I, I think in terms of the future, like we talked about in the past, yeah. but there I, I've, I've been in moments where I, my ego has gone where I'm That's just, a, I'm just a channel. And when I'm in that moment, I'm like, this is, this is beautiful. I'm almost barely aware of even the fact I think it's beautiful. It's more just, it's more, it's more, you think it's beautiful when you're out of it and you're reflecting back on it. That's when you're kind of aware of what it meant to you. But in the right. moment, it's just like, it's just what it is. Like you're just yeah. so kind of in, in the present moment. But, um, Anyway, man, so this was great. And the last thing I want you to share with all of us is what are you currently working on, if anything, and where can people find you if they'd like to support you? Sure. Uh, I mean, basically, I have a practice now, which is in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, obviously, that's where you could get in-person sessions, but also I do Zoom sessions um, globally. And to do that, you simply go to my website, which is livewithoutpains.com. There's a contact us button on there. If you just want to email me about questions about your situation, or if you want to schedule a session, you could do that. Um, to, in terms of getting information about the OUS method, to me, the best place is go to uh, YouTube and just go, uh, search Dr. Mitchell Yas. I have about 280 videos there, all applicable videos, all about teaching about what I think is the cause. And again, if you find that this might be relevant to you and you want to contact me, you can email me at drmitch at mitchellyas.com. Those are the primary ways of reaching me. And I think the best sources um, to get information about the method. And um, I think that's the best I can offer people. And hopefully people take me up on my offer. Beautiful, man. Well, 
Honestly, th- thanks for a brilliant podcast. This oh, I appreciate it, man. I, I I learned a lot, um, and I mean that sincerely. Like I learned a lot from this. Um, just helped fill in a lot of the blanks I had with understanding the human body and understanding pain. And I, I think I completely discounted the effect of muscle tension on the body um, mm-hmm. because I'm someone I I work out. I don't stretch very much. Like I stretch a little bit in the morning. But I don't really take it seriously. And so when you were talking about all this muscle imbalances, a lot of time being muscle tension, yes. it really makes me reflect on that about my workouts. And when I work out my hamstrings, or my quads or my glutes or anything like, okay, make sure that you relax after, make sure that you stretch, make sure you use a, you use a foam roller, like, right. you know, really, you know, maneuver that. And yeah, thanks for just being you know, very generous. Thank you for, yeah. Thanks for like in a big way, dedicating your life to helping other people. Um, I really appreciate that. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you doing what you're doing and spreading the gospel. And I think sharing your love with people in the way that you do. So I'm happy and honored to have been on your podcast, man. And hopefully we, you know, get some people to think a little differently. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Take Take care. care. I'll speak to you. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into the show today, everybody. If you enjoyed it and you want to show your support, be sure to click the subscribe button and share this podcast with someone you feel will enjoy it. And before we go, I want to take another moment to thank our sponsors, Listening to Smile and Indigo Sun. And if you're interested in anything I mentioned regarding either of them, be sure to visit their websites, which are linked in the description of this podcast. And that's it. So I'll see you all in the next episode. I love you. Bye.